Shall we open our Bibles at the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5? Having dealt last night with the Gospel according to Ezra, as found in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. There's not four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, nor 27 Gospels, as there are books of the New Testament, nor 66 Gospels from Genesis through Revelation, but one Gospel. One Gospel from Genesis through Revelation, but a Gospel according to Genesis, a Gospel according to Revelation that we'll deal with on Wednesday night. Let's look tonight at the same old Gospel according to Matthew chapter 5. You will recall that we saw last night that Ezra, the scribe, returned from Persia to Canaan and prayerfully instituted a reformation of God's people back to the God of their fathers and back to the keeping of the holy law in the power of the Holy Spirit who caused him to pray in this way and to bring the people together to look forward to Jesus the Messiah who would come and send the same gospel out to the very ends of the earth. And approximately 450 or so years later, in fulfillment of the prophecy made in Daniel's 70th weeks, 70 weeks, the Messiah was anointed in the middle of the 70th week, yet not for himself, in order at the time of his baptism, and then he died and made an end to transgression three and a half years after that baptism, when he bled and died on Calvary to renew the covenant with his blood, the blood of the everlasting covenant, the blood of the one who was yesterday from the time of Adam, today when he came in the flesh, and forever to the end of time the same. Well now, after our Savior's baptism, his anointing, and before he was cut off, uh, but not for himself, he gives us his own re-presentation of the laws of the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, his own accurate description of the real meaning of the Spirit-filled law of God revealed to Moses by the same second person of the Trinity. I shouldn't say Jesus. I've been having a discussion with your pastor the whole afternoon as to these distinctions. But the law which the second person of the Trinity revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai, he, that same divine person as Jesus Christ, now reendorses and emphatically describes in the continual unfolding of the same 
undivided kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Now we need to see, beloved, in this Sermon on the Mount, which deals with the way to pray and to promote reformation, we need to see that Jesus throughout is speaking to his disciples. He taught them and opened his mouth, saying, It's incredible to me that there are people in supposedly evangelical churches today who say that everything written in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus revealed was good for a different dispensation, for a different group of people so that no born-again Christian living after Calvary should ever pray the Our Father because it is argued that is essentially a Jewish and not a Christian prayer. I say this is an incredible theory because we are clearly told in the first few verses of Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus is speaking not to the scribes and the Pharisees, whom he calls the men of old in this chapter, but that he is warning his adversaries against these men of old, against the scribes and the Pharisees who twisted and perverted the law of Moses, and he is restating the law of Moses in contemporary terms to his listeners who were his disciples. 5 verse 1. And when Jesus sat down, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now I'm very tempted to spend a long time expounding the Sermon on the Mount. But if I do, we shall be here till tomorrow morning. And we need to go home and to get rested up and to go to work. So let me go over this very quickly and concentrate on what this discourse, perhaps the greatest discourse that has ever been revealed by God through His blessed Son directly to man, has to say specifically about prayer and reformation. But before doing that, let us just see that Jesus speaking to his disciples does not say that the poor are blessed. That's a Marxist interpretation. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is to say, blessed are those people, his disciples, who've come to the end of their tether, who realize their own poverty in spirit and their need to be enriched by the Holy Spirit. Blessed are they, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we see that kingdom of heaven, and we enter into that kingdom of heaven only when we are born again by the mighty 
irresistible wind-like blowing of the Holy Spirit. Then we are translated from poverty of spirit, poorness of spirit, to richness of spirit, to the fullness of the Spirit of God. Verse 4, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted, that is, they shall be strengthened. Here again, this text does not mean that everybody who cries is to be blessed, but blessed are those who mourn on account of their own poverty of spirit. Blessed are those who mourn and feel sorry for their own coming short of the glory of God. Blessed are those who love other Christians who are suffering, for they that so mourn shall be comforted. In verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now notice that it doesn't say, Blessed are the weak, but blessed are the meek. And there's some folks who don't know the difference between weak and meek. Well, it's a very simple difference. They're exact opposites. An elephant, once you've tamed it and harnessed it to subject itself to the law of its master, is meek, but hardly weak. And a Christian, who's strong as a horse, who has been tamed by the bridle of the law of God, which our Savior is to go on and to expound in this uh, collection of Beatitudes, is a meek, but hardly a weak Christian. Meek, therefore, means to be strong, vigorous, and law-abiding, to abide by and channelize one's strength in subjection to the harness of the law of God. And the blessed promise of those who subject themselves to the law of the kingdom of God, the same kingdom which God reveals to Moses in the Ten Commandments, shall inherit the earth. Notice, folks, it doesn't say they shall be raptured from the earth, and the earth will become the property of Satan and his crowd, and then finally destroyed in one final holocaust. It says that the meek, the law-abiding citizens of God's kingdom, shall inherit the earth. Not only inherit the earth when they die and go to heaven, and after the second coming, are brought back by Jesus with heaven onto the new earth and then live on that earth, the same earth that we're on now but renewed by fire and all the evil works purged off and that we inherit this earth, that earth, this earth after the second coming forever, but also that those who are meek and who keep the law of God prosper in this life here and now and inherit this earth more and more here and now in the time that lies ahead between now and the end of the centuries at the second coming. The children of God are predestined, those who are meek, to inherit this earth here and now and even more so after their death and the second coming when they come back to live here forever. <clears throat> Verse 6, 
Blessed are those which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. What does it mean to hunger and to thirst after righteousness? Well, it means to long to keep the law of God, because the law of God that our Savior is about to expound, the Ten Commandments that were revealed by the second person of the Trinity to Moses on Mount Sinai, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, are the very principles of righteousness which those who hunger and thirst after it shall be filled with. It doesn't say that if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, desire to live by the law of God, that we may perhaps be filled, if the sovereign God should so decree. It guarantees that we shall be filled. You see, if we honor our father and our mother, then our days shall be long, on this earth, in this land, which the Lord our God giveth us. Not a bit of use for the dispensationalist to say, that's just for the Jews, for the land of Palestine, before Christ came, because the Apostle Paul picks up that same fifth commandment and requotes it in Ephesians chapter 6, the first few verses, and throws it out as a promise of God for the Gentiles to be blessed in the land in which the Gentiles were then living outside of Palestine, if they will honor their father and their mother. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Here we have the first specification of one of the laws of righteousness generally referred to in verse 6. Now the righteousness after which we are to hunger and thirst says Jesus, are the Ten Commandments. And one such principle of righteousness, mentioned in verse 8, is to be pure in heart. In other words, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's stated negatively, and that commandment positively requires that we shall be pure in heart. And the blessing which Jesus says will obtain to those who obey this law of the kingdom of God not to commit adultery is that they shall see God. Oh, beloved, if we play around with this commandment, if we indulge ourselves in acts or thoughts of adultery, we find out, do we not, that our vision of God is obscured, that we don't see the glory and the holiness of our God anymore until we repent from that sin in thought, word, and deed and turn back to our God and ask his forgiveness. Verse 9, the Savior goes on to specify another of the laws of righteousness of the Ten Commandments. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who keep the peace. The commandment says, Thou shalt not kill, negatively. Positively, that means thou shalt do everything in thy power to promote life, peace, harmony, law and order. Jesus says that the peacemakers, the people who do not kill, the people who protest against the slaughter of unborn babies in moving against abortion, 
that such peacemakers shall be called the children of God. Notice in verse 10 that our Savior anticipates that those who stand up for the principles of morality, the Ten Commandments of our Savior, which he is restating here once more, shall indeed be persecuted for the sake of righteousness, that is, for the sake of the morality of the Ten Commandments, but that the kingdom of heaven shall be theirs. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for the sake of the principles of righteousness, the law of God, for theirs shall be the kingdom of heaven when they die. No, no, it doesn't say that. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus says elsewhere, the kingdom of heaven is amongst you, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. He said to the Pharisees, that is, my believers who have been born again, who have entered into the kingdom of heaven, who are standing right here surrounded by your, you Pharisees, are in your midst, so that the kingdom of God, O Pharisees, is within you. That is to say, within your midst. It is found in the hearts of my disciples standing in the middle of you group of Pharisees here and now. So we see then that the kingdom of heaven is not something which only starts once we die and go to glory, the kingdom of heaven, beloved, is something we enter into in this life, here and now, through rebirth. And the Savior says that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for standing up for the morality of the Christ-written, spirit-inscribed Ten Commandments, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This must surely mean that a person who says they're saved, but who breaks the Ten Commandments, isn't in that kingdom at all, and that those who sing free from the law, O happy condition, sin all you want, there's always remission, that they do lie when they claim to be born again. Because the kingdom of heaven is not like that. The kingdom of heaven is where the principles of righteousness and law and order reign in the life of the person who claims to be religious. Verse 11. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. Here we have the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. But if you're going to be my witnesses, says Jesus, they will bear false witness against you, even as they bore false witness against him and finally crucified him. Now why are we to be pure in heart, not to commit adultery? Why are we to be peacemakers, not to kill? Why are we to endure evil slander against us, but ourselves not to bear false witness? We are to do it, end of verse 11, for Jesus' sake, not for our sake, not because we are uh, Pharisees who live holier, purer lives in ourselves and the worldlings, but for the sake of Jesus. Why for his sake? 
because this is his law which he gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Well, what kind of blasphemy is it then if a person claims to be a Christian and he's not prepared to try to live by the Ten Commandments in the power of the Holy Spirit where Jesus says that we must do this for his sake. Rejoice, verse 12, and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. I just love that verse, folks. And I love that verse because Jesus doesn't say this is a new kind of persecution that will only start in this dispensation, but the previous dispensations never knew anything like this because they had different laws operating under that economy. No, no, says Jesus, you will be persecuted in exactly the same way that the prophets of the Old Testament were persecuted for standing up to maintain the same values for my sake. Do you see it? The unity of the covenant. Do you see it? That which the prophets were persecuted for doing, that the Christians in the New Testament time will be persecuted for doing. Package deal. One Bible. One covenant from Genesis to Revelation. Undivided. Verse 13. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt hath lost his savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of man. Martin Luther read this verse and he said, We are the salt of the earth. The function of salt, says Luther, is to get out of the salt pot and to be rubbed into the decomposing meat so that the process of the development of putrefaction in the meat can be arrested by the geographical presence of the salt. And then Luther applied this to the separatist Christian who doesn't want to touch, who doesn't want to associate, who doesn't want to defile himself by coming into contact with a worldling. And Luther said to these Christians, you are the salt of the earth, but what's the use of salt if it stays inside of a salt cellar? That's right. And you know something, friends? Many, many evangelicals today are inside of a salt cellar. They don't want to come into contact with the meat. And Jesus says, if we stay in the salt cellar, but we don't get involved in the warp and the woof of the economic and the political and the artistic and the everything else that's going on round about us, all we're good for, says Jesus prophetically, is to be thrown outside and to be trampled on with the feet of the unbeliever. Because we should be going outside and trampling on the unbeliever, converting them to our team, or otherwise being used by instruments of God in trampling them down as the feet of Jesus, our risen head, who is now seated in heaven and is now, through his church, through his earthly people, subduing all of his enemies until they've been reduced to his footstool. So what are you doing? Are you in the name of the Lord marching out and dictating the pace in life outside of a church? Or are you like salt cringing inside the salt cellar of the church not wanting to get involved in these other so-called worldly issues and allowing the pagan bunch, 
the children of Satan, the trespasses on this world as God's property to dictate the pace of things outside. Jesus says, that's the way we are. We're only good to be trampled down by the unbelievers because we won't go outside and in the name of the Lord trample them down into submission through the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Verse 14, ye are the light of the chosen, frozen, feeble few. That right? No. Ye are the light of the world. Where are we to shine? You in your small corner, and I in my small corner? No, no. We're to shine in the world. Go ye into all the world, and turn all of the nations into my disciples. That's what the Greek says. And baptize them, the nations, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what nation is there that doesn't have infants and children? And then teach them all things whatsoever I have ever commanded you. And lo, I shall be with you always, even unto the ends of the earth, because ye are the light of the world. People don't light a candle and put it under a bushel. You don't start a little revival inside the bushel of the four walls of a little church. But that revival spreads outside of the church, folks. It irrigates and it brings revival wherever it goes. And the community gets stirred up. And the principles of righteousness, thou shalt not kill, quit the slaughter of unborn babies. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's not right for you to do your own thing, even in your own house, outside of wedlock. Then we get a reformation as the salt goes through into the fabric of society and starts dissipating and pushing away the principles of pollution. Now then, men light a candle. They don't hide it under a bushel, but they lift it up on a candlestick. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. They raise the banner of the cross and of his morality. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. All? That sounds awful Arminian, doesn't it? No, it isn't. Why it is that some Calvinists and many enemies of Calvinists think that Calvinists believe that Jesus only died to save two or three people here, four or five over there. That's not the teaching of Scripture at all. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his son, and that he of the light of the world to give light unto the world, to everybody that lives in the house. Verse 16. Here's a good optimistic post-millennial principle, folks. Let your light so shine before men that they may say that you're a bunch of screwballs and praise God that if there is one that they're not like you. No. Let your light so shine before men, before all men, that they may see your good works and creep further into their burrows into hell. No, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You see, it's in the light of this that Jesus can go on to say, Verse 17, do not think that I have come to destroy the law. 
which I've just been expounding and said we must keep as the way in which we give light, as the way in which we assault, give saltiness to the world. I haven't come to destroy it. To destroy the law of God would be to destroy the gospel because the gospel is the law of God and the law of God is the gospel. It's the grace of God in the law and the lawfulness of God in the grace of God. I've not come to destroy the law which I myself revealed in the Garden of Eden to Adam and stamped it on his heart which I once again re-promulgated to my ancient people on Mount Sinai which I am once again as Christ incarnate audibly and vocally enunciating to you my disciples which my Holy Spirit after my my ascension into heaven will come and inscribe on the fleshly tables of your hearts the law of God as it was on the heart of Adam before the fall Romans chapter 2 verse 14 through 16 don't think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets I haven't come to destroy but to fulfill for truly I tell you Till the heaven and the earth pass away. One jot and one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Ah, says the dispensationalist, you see, it's until Calvary it will be kept and there it will be fulfilled. Not so, says Jesus. The law will go on being fulfilled until the heaven and the earth pass away. And if you want to know when that is, it's never. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, the earth will be renewed, but it won't pass away. And the children of the kingdom will abide by God's law on the new earth forever. And the children of darkness will break God's law and be punished for the breach of God's law in hell forever outside of the sorcerers and the murderers and the adulterers and the thieves and all liars. All those who break the Ten Commandments. See it? You see it? Isn't it obvious? Go up to any worldling at the office tomorrow and he'll tell you, well, that's obvious. I've been telling you Christians all these years that only good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, if there is a heaven and a hell. And all you've turned around and said, no, no, it's so simple. Just believe in Jesus and you can be as bad as you like. Don't believe in Jesus and you can be as good as you like and you'll still be lost. And the worldling says, what kind of crackpot theology is that? And the worldling is right. Jesus died to make us good. By grace are we saved, through faith. And that's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, but we created unto good works unto good works which God hath foreordained that you and I should walk therein that's the gospel that's the gospel now then Jesus says verse 18 till heaven and earth pass not one jot or one tittle shall in any wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled and therefore whosoever Ah, that the dispensationalists who love these whosoevers of the Bible would listen to this one. Whosoever shall break one of these least commandments. 
and even the teensy-weensy Sabbath commandment that nearly everybody breaks today. Right? Whosoever shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so. Why, we have a great minority of theological seminaries, particularly in America, dedicated today to teach men to break these commandments, which are falsely regarded as being Jewish and for a previous dispensation. And Jesus says that if we break these commandments and teach men to do that, we shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Not quite sure what that means. Whether it means we'll go to hell, or whether we'll be saved as antinomians by the skin of our teeth, but when we get to glory, we're at the very bottom of the rung. Either way, it's not very nice. But whosoever shall do these commandments and shall teach these commandments as we must endeavor to do, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Not great in the theological seminaries, not great in the denominations. Their opinion doesn't really matter. But shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven of which Jesus is the head. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness, unless your law-keepingness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now that's interesting. The scribes and the Pharisees were trying to keep the Ten Commandments. Of course, they had all kinds of loopholes. They said, for example, it's all right to look at a woman and lust after her as long as you don't lie with her. And it's all right to want to murder someone you don't like as long as you don't actually pluck out a great big two-edged sword or a rapier with a point on the end and take a jab at him or slush his head off. Jesus says, no. Unless our righteousness exceeds that kind of righteousness, unless it's a righteousness that proceeds from a regenerate, born-again, Christ-loving, spirit-filled, decalogue-loving heart, that we who say we are Christians, he's speaking to his disciples, will nowhere enter into the kingdom of heaven. Can't go in. Not that you're in by the skin of your teeth, but you can't go in at all. No man is born again, beloved. No man has been born again who isn't trying to keep the Ten Commandments. I didn't say that. Jesus says it. You have heard, he goes on to say, elaborating what he means by the inward need of really keeping the Ten Commandments spiritually in the power of the Holy Spirit, prayerfully, the way God intended when he revealed this, these commandments to Moses. You have heard that it was said by those of the old time, by the Pharisees and their grandfathers, you shall not kill, and whosoever shall kill will be in danger of judgment. And, of course, they went on to say, but as long as you don't actually kill someone and you merely wish him dead, well, then you're not in danger of judgment. Not so, says Jesus. Let me tell you what God meant when he said that commandment, thou shalt not kill. Not what the Pharisees later twisted it up to pervert it to mean. Jesus says in verse 22, as the one who gave the Ten Commandments originally, listen, I tell you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, you miserable vain fellow, or perhaps I spit on you, shall be in danger of the council. Whosoever shall say, Thou fool, that means you unloved, morally depraved individual, 
shall be in danger of hellfire. Wow, says someone. That's weird. God would send people to hell to call someone else a fool? Well, don't get mad at me about it, folks. Get mad at Jesus. His word. His teaching. Not mine. I'm just a poor preacher trying to tell it like it is. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother's got something against you, leave your gift there. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You know what this is saying? Not only must you and I make something right with someone we've offended, but if we know that he's mad at us unjustly, we've got to go to him and do our best to straighten it out before we bring God a dime. How many of us do that? How many of us do that? And Jesus says if we don't do that, we are murderers. We've written off that man who's mad at us without just cause and we're not going to do anything to be a peacemaker, which he tells us to do earlier in the chapter. Verse 27. He moves on to the seventh commandment. You've heard that it was said by those of the old time, the Pharisees, and they were repeating something of what Moses said, but hardly the full thrust of what Moses meant. Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I tell you, as Moses told you, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Verse 33. And then he goes into a question of divorce. That's a very touchy subject. I'll just pass over it, but ask you to pray it through on your knees tonight, later. Verse 33, he moves on to the third commandment. Again, you have heard that it has been said by those of old time, the Pharisees, you shall not forswear yourself, that means don't perjure yourself, but you shall perform your oaths unto the Lord. In other words, you can lie, and that's quite all right, as long as you haven't taken an oath. If you've taken an oath, well, then you mustn't lie. But if you haven't taken an oath, then it's not so important. Listen, says Jesus, here connecting the third and the ninth commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness. I tell you, don't swear at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth. And then, verse 38, let your communication be yea, yea, and nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than this cometh of de evil cometh of the devil. I wonder how many preachers are the devil. I've encountered such a lot of lying amongst preachers in my life. Almost makes me think that politicians are, are trustworthy people. But beware of preachers. Because they won't tell it like it is. They won't say yes, yes, and no, no. It is always yes and no. Or maybe, or may I give you a few suggestions instead of saying, listen, this is what God says. Verse 48, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. This point the pseudo-Calvinist says, Oh, I don't want any of this imperfection. God takes me just as I am. Salvation is all by grace. None of us can be perfect. Listen, Jesus says, Be perfect. I can't be perfect, true enough, but you've got to be it. How can we call ourselves Christians if we're not trying to be perfect with every ounce of our strength? To be as perfect as a human being, the fallen seed of Adam, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, can possibly be. 
even as our Father in heaven, to his divine extent, whose image we are, is perfect in a godly way. Now, that was the introduction. Let's now move on to the sermon. Don't worry. This time, I hope the introduction will be longer than the sermon. We're interested in prayer and reformation. Chapter 6. I'm going to spend a whole week expounding the Our Father in Pensacola Theological Institute this year, Lord willing, the first week of July. So let me just give a very quick uh, express train jet service outline in the next few minutes of what I'll develop over a week at the beginning of the month of August. When I say July, I believe it's the, yeah, the first week of August this year. Jesus says, verse 6, when you pray, when you pray, verse 5, don't pray like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing on the synagogues, in the synagogues, on the corners of the streets, so that they can be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. More strictly, they've lost their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your closet. And when you've shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret shall reward you openly. And when you pray, don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do. They think that they shall be heard by their much speaking. Don't you therefore be like them, because your Father knows what things you need before you ask. This is the way in which you should pray. Well, let's not take six days to expound it. Just notice, though, that this prayer has six petitions. The first three petitions don't ask God for a single thing that is of immediate benefit to us or to any other human being. The first three of the six petitions, the first half of the prayer, is solely to glorify God. It's a prayer to exalt God's sovereignty. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, not mine. Thy kingdom come, not mine. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. I love that, in earth as it is in heaven. Dispensationalist says, or means, after the rapture your will will be done, but not now. Jesus says, may your will be done on earth right now in the same way in which it is right now being done in heaven. Only after we've put these petitions for the unfolding of the kingdom of God first in our prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Hallowed be Thy name. Only then do we begin to pray for our own needs and one another's. Give us this day our daily bread. Notice not give me this day my daily bread. God bless me. God bless the wife. God bless the children. God bless our cat. God bless our dog. For Christ's sake, amen. What kind of a prayer is that? Two-thirds of the people in the world never had enough food in their stomachs since they were born. Need to pray for them. Of course, many would say, well, of course, it doesn't mean food. Daily bread doesn't mean daily bread. 
Of course, as a dispensationalist, I'm committed to a literalistic interpretation of Scripture, you see. And therefore, daily bread doesn't mean daily bread, it means threats. Spiritual food. Right? Hardly. Would include the spiritual food, of course. But daily bread is daily bread. Give us our daily bread. Perhaps we should spend some time praying for our starving fellow believers behind the Iron Curtain. If God would give them their daily bread. I feel kind of bad. I, I'm like your preacher. Uh, I, I, love, uh, I love food. Uh, he believes that, that gluttony and tongues disappeared uh, uh, at the end of the book of Acts. I'm not so sure. <laughs> Well, I do know I, I, I had a real good meal tonight, and God bless my hostess. It was lovely. It was delicious. But you know, really, there's people starving who haven't in the last week, maybe in the last month, ate as much as I ate tonight. And I tell myself, well, the old furnace needs stoking so I can preach it off. And that's true, too. But how much time do you or I really pray that God will give daily bread to our brethren. Perhaps most of our brethren throughout the world have never had that daily bread as much as they need it. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now we take that and we twist it and we, we make it read, Lord, uh, you've forgiven me my debts for the sake of Jesus Christ and because I just hate anything that stinks of sanctification by works, I'm not going to bother to forgive those people who've got a grudge against me. Because if I were to do that, that would show I'm not trusting in the merits of Jesus Christ alone, but I'm trying to make my own ability to forgive those who've wronged me a precondition of you forgiving me. Now, of course, our forgiving of those who hurt us is not a precondition of God forgiving us our sins. But I'll tell you this, that if we really are Christians and we really have the nature of Jesus Christ and don't just say so, we are going to forgive those who hurt us in the same way that Jesus forgives us our sin. And I am just appalled and sick to see the number of fundamentalist Christians who claim to be saved, who say that their sins have been forgiven, and who bear hatred and malice and ill will, not only towards worldlings who've hurt them, but towards God's born-again Christians. Of course, this is a Jewish prayer, so why bother about it? It's for a previous dispensation. They don't say it, they act like they believe it. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So often we say, well, nobody's perfect. Jesus took it all. I don't have to worry anymore. The Bible says, pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are to hate sin. The Bible says, without sanctification, without holiness, nobody will see the Lord. Even if he claims to be a supralapsarian, old-school Presbyterian, antidiluvian, prefabricated, post-millennial Calvinist. Nobody gets saved. 
who doesn't evidence the truth of his claim that is saved by a holy, sin-hating, God-fearing life. Let's hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For that's the whole duty of man. And then our Savior tells us to be good Calvinists and to get lost in the glory of the sovereignty and the transcendence of God. For thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, thine is the glory forever. Verse 25 elaborates a little more on what it means, give us this day our daily bread. I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor your body, what you'll put on, your clothes. Isn't your life more than food and your body than clothing? Take a look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather together in barns, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than they are? Well, the birds are God's creatures too, but they're not the image of God. We're the image of God, and if we're born again, we're the reconstituted image of God. And uh, what are you worried about clothing for? Look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil, they don't spin, but I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory, remember Solomon, lived in that previous dispensation, got nothing to do with this dispensation of Christianity. Jesus says, no, remember Solomon. Even he in all of his glory wasn't clothed like one such lily. Verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek to be born again first so that you can enter into that kingdom. And don't just seek to be born again to enter into the kingdom of God, but also seek his righteousness. Seek to live by the laws of the kingdom. Seek that the Spirit of God would engrave the law of God in your heart so that you can be the light of the world, so that you can be the salt of man, so that everyone can see that you're a Christian before they see that neon light Jesus saves sign flashing in their eyes. They can see your salt. They can see you love God. They can see you keep the commandments. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And Jesus says all of these things will be given to you. Food, clothes, shelter. God will take care of you. Chapter 7, verse 7. Ask. That means pray. Get down on your knees and say, Lord, this is what I want. Not for my sake, but for the sake of your kingdom. Ask, and it will be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Verse 9. What father is there amongst you, whom if his son asks him for bread will give him a rock? Children, I haven't spoken to you yet. Were you hungry tonight? Did you ask your dad for a piece of bread? Any of you? Mom, give me a piece of bread. Anyone say it tonight? You did. Good. What did your dad do? Did he give you a rock? Your mom? Did he give you a rock? Did he give you a piece of bread? Now Jesus says, look. If a father will give a hungry child a piece of bread when he asks for a piece of bread... Don't you think the Heavenly Father, God, who loves us much more than our daddy and mommy loves us, don't you think that he will give us the good things, not just a piece of bread, but 
something even nicer than a piece of bread, good things, to those that ask him. Chapter 8, verse 2. Behold, there came a leper and worshipped Jesus, saying, Lord, if you want to, you can make me clean. Now, here's a man who's learned how to pray. Lord, it's up to you. Lord, I don't have claims against you, but if it's your sovereign will to save me, make me clean. Calvinist prayer. And Jesus cleanses him and then says, Jesus did it all. Now you don't have to do anything, right? Wrong. Verse 4, Jesus heals him and says, Now see that you don't tell anybody. Today we would say, see that you advertise that Christ has saved you with neon. Jesus says, see you don't tell anyone, but go on your way and show yourself to your priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Don't talk so much about Jesus, 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 but do nothing, but rather go do something which will show people that you really do believe and you're going to send The laws of God, the laws of the covenant. If someone says, ah, oh, but that was a Jewish believer. All right, what about the next case? Roman centurion, next verse. Jesus entered into Capernaum. There came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Verse 8, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, Lord. I'm a totally depraved sinner, Lord. You just speak the word only. You just effectively heal, limitedly atone for me. Let your irresistible grace operate, Lord. That's all I need. And it will be so. Just speak the word. Verse 10, when Jesus heard that, he marveled. And he said to those that followed him, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great a faith, no, in all Israel. And I say unto you, and this is my last verse, it really is. I've gone this far to link it back to Moses, you see, with whom we started. Jesus said, I tell you, many shall come from the east and the west, Gentiles, and they shall sit down as the bride of Christ, separate from the Israelites as God's earthly bride? No. They shall come from the east and the west. And as one people, as one covenant people in all ages, that's my parenthesis, like the dispensationalist parenthesis in Daniel 9, but this parenthesis is a true parenthesis. They shall come and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So we see that Abram, Isaac and Jacob didn't just get earthly promises to Palestine, but they did indeed inherit, as do all who are born again, as they were, the kingdom of heaven. They sought the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, the Ten Commandments, in the power of his Spirit, prayerfully and reformationally, and everything they needed was given to them, as it is and will be to us tonight.
who believe the same everlasting gospel. Thank you for your patience. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.